Welcome to First Generation Burden, a series of conversations with immigrants and the children of immigrants. My name is Rich Tu and I'm your host. This is episode 39 and we're in the middle of season five. Today we have another three-person conversation and it's with designers Andy Chen and Vakas Jawade, better known as the partners of Isometric Studio. This is recorded at Listening Party at Canal Street Market. Uh, first off, I just want to say that I'm a big fan of their work. Their team has created large spatial experiences for clients like Princeton, Google, Cooper Hewitt, and the Museum of the City of New York. We talk about how they met, how they acknowledge identity in large spaces, as well as their own identities, Andy being of Taiwanese descent and Vakas from Pakistan. Also, we discuss how they navigate working with large institutions and even how they challenge them especially in the activism space. It's a really fascinating conversation. Also, if you're into experiential design, you're going to love this. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Andy Chen and Vakas Jawade, better known as Isometric Studio. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate you. Oh, that's a lot better. Yes. Oh, my God. It is also still blazing hot in here. Oh, yikes. Okay, so I'm glad we were able to figure out those technical difficulties and we're recording. Okay, great. So Andy Chen, Vakas Jawade, thank you so much for coming through to First Gen Burden over here at Listening Party Canal Street Market. I know we had a little bit of a false start <laughs> right up top, but uh, Vakas, I know that you were just in the middle of telling us a little bit about who you are, where you're from. Just for the listener, I'm just going to do a fresh reset on this one. Sure. So... Isometric Studio in the house. Um, Andy, I know that we've known each other personally for a little bit. We first met when John Key gave his talk at the Mad Museum, uh, Museum of Art and Design for the listener for AIG in New York. Mm-hmm. The great John Key, he gave a, gave a great presentation that evening, and then we all hung out afterwards. And I was very enamored by the work of Isometric Studio, as well as all the great work that you do within the social impact space, and also just the the beautiful aesthetic and the the thought and the um not even problem solving really the storytelling that you bring to your work on almost every level in these large massive experiential spaces yeah it is it is really great and also such a range of vocabulary that you bring to the table and also a range of just tone there's you know the the happy family market which feels like very exuberant and then also there's very um intellectual work that is very thought-provoking as well as um um, thought inciting which i love so it's a beautiful range and i'm just honored to have you in the studio thank you so much thank you all right so the way we begin every episode just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from vakas i'm sorry that we might have to do this one again (laughs) but i would love for you to kick it off thank you happy new year we're so excited to be here um your podcast is very inspiring for us when we make presentations, we try to insert our personal story in like little chunks. And here we have an opportunity to really talk about it. And um, and yeah, it's really inspiring. So thanks. Thank you. No, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So, yeah. um, my story is that I was born in Karachi, Pakistan, which is the fifth most populous uh, city in the world. It's gigantic. And my dad was an aircraft engineer. We traveled the world. We actually lived in several cities, including when I was very young in Damascus, Syria, um, a city that's now ravaged by war. We also lived in Dubai, Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. And then I went to high school in Karachi. And after that, I came to the United States to go to college at Princeton. And following that, I got a master's in architecture at Harvard. And for the last five years, I've been working with Andy at Isometric in Brooklyn, New York. There you go. Andy. 
Where are you at? My parents are from Taiwan. They're both Taiwanese immigrants um, that came to the United States when they were pretty young. Um, my mom did high school here, so she's fairly sort of, uh, she understands America if not being Americanized. And I grew up here, I was born here, raised here uh, in LA and you know, went to a series of different kinds of schools, but ultimately uh, sort of you know, met Vacasse at Princeton, which kind of changed my life because I'd never thought of myself as, you know, being remotely artsy, much less <laughs> <laughs> sort of, a, you know, doing design as a profession. So, um, oh, so can I yeah. can I uh, investigate that a little bit? Sure. So you both met at Princeton, but what was your track at Princeton? Were you in the creative space, Vacasse, or was it? Or how did you both converge in mm -hmm. the, at Princeton? Well, yeah, uh, I I. I was disallowed from doing anything cr remotely creative when <laughs> they had have you fill out a questionnaire before you you matriculate and you know my parents were uh, at the time like sort of very careful about you know what what are you supposed to select because it's going to dictate your life even though it's, <laughs> it's non-binding it's just like telling the school what right. you might study yeah and this uh, is yeah <laughs> it's engraved in stone right you're in bandersnatch mode have to choose your path <laughs> right exactly and then like if you choose this adventure you never go on the other one <laughs> uh and so you know at the time I, the the theory was that i would be um, a pre-law sort of you know major study something like politics or political science or something like that so i could go to law school and you know fulfill this sort of you know standard asian dream and oh, yeah. <laughs> uh and because that it was you know to a credit to my parents that they understood that i was no good at science and math and so like that <laughs> what was left was uh you know the pre-law track um but so i didn't you know understand that you know i could ostensibly study art or do anything that was related to the arts until uh, you know, I had a good friend. I, I kind of did um, a little bit of like macromedia, Dreamweaver, graphic design for a, Dreamweaver. A, yeah, I know, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> CS two, CS three, fireworks. Wow. Right. Like somebody asked me to design a website. I was. It was so bad. It was so <laughs> terrible. It's all just like flat JPEGs and just little hot spots here and yeah, there. Yeah, and then cut into like very <laughs> spliced into various oh, different yeah. graphics. Oh yeah. I remember. I remember when I discovered rollover states uh -huh. in Dreamweaver. I was like, ooh. Yeah. And slightly then, dynamic. Yeah, and you. Can can do uh, like drop shadow rollovers. I mean, like at the time, like that was always available, but it was exciting. And uh, so a friend of mine wanted to start a design agency and um, at Princeton because we didn't have a graphic design curriculum. They thought that was too uh, sort of base and commercial um, for Princeton. And so they- Princeton uh, thought this? Yeah. Okay. This is in baked into the institutional mindset. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, okay. It, it's like basically it has to be for learning for its own sake. And there's a very sort of historically important architecture program and a really important art program, but they don't consider graphic design to be one of those professions. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. And so uh, basically this friend of mine wanted to start a design agency at Princeton and um, through the, the school. So it's kind of like a kind of like making posters for various events and it became really popular and important. And I learned a lot through design there and Vacasse, you know, kind of joined that design agency. Um, and that's kind of how we started working together now, mm -hmm. like yeah, 14 years ago, yeah, something like, something that. like yeah. that. And is this uh, still, are, is the basis of that partnership early, early on still very much the, the DNA that's, that's incorporated into isometric now? <laughs> Uh, I think it began with a personal relationship. Of course, first, yes. Right? So we met in a basement cafe 
at Princeton through friends. And uh, it was a really awkward first meeting because he was dating a friend of mine. And my first impression of Andy was that he seemed a little aloof and like too arrogant. So I oh, started shit. off like We're not, spilling tea really early. <laughs> not liking him at all. And especially because he was dating my friend. So I was like overly protective of my friend. Ah. I was like, who is this person that he's dating? And so they broke up after a while. And somehow Andy and I became friends through that encounter. Mm. And I submitted an application to the student design agency that Andy had created. And uh, he decided to hire me. <laughs> and so, and then later on this one night, um, we were just on, you know, like G-chat. Yes. And Andy confided in me that he was not having a great time. And I have this personality that I jump to like solve people's problems. So I was like, I'm going to come over and bring you like soup and this and that. And so we ended up spending like a few hours together that evening. Oh, that's awesome. We became really close after that. And it wasn't until six months or so that we actually turned that friendship into like a relationship. Ah. We were both bringing like different kinds of trauma different kinds of, you know, uh, internalized homophobia to the relationship. So it was very difficult to even say the words like, I love you right, to somebody. Right. A lot of, of barriers, self-created yes. barriers, self-inflicting barriers. Yes. Both self-created and from society, even at Princeton. Yeah. You know, looking back, there were people at Princeton who were really out and about, but they came out as uh, with their LGBT identities later on mm. and i'm talking about white men you know yeah so imagine how the acceptance that you find in the united states and compare that to some of the immigrant cultures that we're coming from of course i feel like it's a lot harder yes to communicate that to our parents to our families and to reconcile that with kind of the family expectations that we bring right so, and a lot of immigrant cultures from a variety of locations tend to have a conservative approach to a lot of things absolutely yeah, yeah. which is compounding on a lot of initial traumas for sure mm -hmm. so a lot of our early conversations regarding design and art happened in an informal very personal very intimate terms we would go to exhibitions together or we would go to like uh take a trip to paris for like I was doing thesis research and Andy was in London on a Fulbright hmm. and we kind of convened there because it was just... Damn, on a Fulbright? Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, it, Yikes. It, it really did change my life because I, you know, before he would take me to these like, sort of modern art or like it was like an exhibition of African modern art or something and he would look at like these blue gashes and some red <laughs> stuff and then he was like, describe this, the narrative of this piece to me <laughs> and I was just like... I'm just seeing blue and red, you know, like <laughs> I didn't understand uh, anything about abstraction. Yeah. And, you know, like the, the, my extent of understanding about design was like, oh, okay, it's a thing to convey a message. You're supposed to sell an idea or, you know, an event or something. It's about promotion. And particularly in the United States, that's how people kind of come to understand right. design. And it, I it serves a marketing purpose. Right. But that marketing purpose is only really well served if you understand the aesthetic underlay yes right and yes. and i think that that's uh something that only kind of like um i was taught through the cost i used to going go to like these kind of museum shows and just be really bored because mm -hmm. i i was told from a young age that this is not for you this is not your culture right and so it's kind of ironic that today we design museum museum exhibitions yeah and you think about like how do you make these things accessible to the younger generations of us that 
come from families where you're told like this is not your culture this is not um relevant to you and this is not for you yeah you know and to turn that around and say actually it's for you now it and, is for you now right mm -hmm. so so i would love to unpack that just a little bit and so you you went from um essentially casual for in a in a summarizing way a, a casual approach to say design um, especially within a commercial space to now you are designing commercial spaces which are very thoughtful as well as highly advanced in terms of like the long form narrative storytelling within large spaces how do you make that leap from hey i'm going to go to this museum and i'm struggling to understand mm -hmm. a narrative uh, an abstraction to I'm going to do that and I'm going to actually help others understand that. Mm -hmm. And it's not like we're talking about decades of time here. This feels like a very short leap. Yes. Well, at Princeton, I studied sociology. So okay. sociology is kind of the profession of ethnography and telling people stories about people who are excluded. So very often talking about the working poor, talking about racialized minorities or talking about immigrants and analyzing these in thoughtful ways that can be explained through storytelling. And so at Princeton, one of the first uh, experiences I had was with a professor named Patricia Fernandez Kelly, who took us into the New, Jer New Jersey State Prison, which was the only maximum security facility in the state. Hmm. In New Jersey? Yeah. In yeah. Rahway? Or the one further down south? In near Trenton. Near Trenton. Oh, okay. In yeah. Hamilton. Yeah. And essentially, um, she kind of took us individual. I like that I knew where the jails were in Jersey just now. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I, I contributed something to that one. <laughs> she took us individually because you could only take one student at a time. And so she, we would meet with these sort of, you know, maximum um, security incarcerated, uh, basically, uh, um, people. And they would tell us their stories. And yeah. we had to re-represent it in some kind of magazine that showed their art and their, um, their kind of poetry. And yes basically not to exculpate themselves from the crimes they committed, but to explain to others kind of what their pathway has been so that they can reach the outside world. Mm. And so that kind of trajectory has kind of stayed with our work, I think, for the last decade. Yeah. Um, and th at some point, I wanted to be able to communicate these stories through design, right? which is to say, like, to try to find a vehicle that is aesthetic that is bracing that is immersive that you can tell these stories in right yeah and i think that the place where we really connected early on and still is kind of the foundation of our personal and working relationship is a kind of desire for activism mm. and i think it comes from a religious upbringing to be yeah. honest andy went to a religious a christian school growing up and kind of reconciling all of that and i grew up as a muslim and even though later on we questioned all of that and brought our own personal interpretations mm -hmm. to that, that desire to like help people yeah. and make the world a better place kind of stayed, which I think is one of the best parts about religion. Yeah. And uh, so I was, I became a peace activist when I was 16. I went to India for a peace conference and uh, kind of discovered like, wow, you know, there's a whole other way of seeing the world and being, and we're all, we all have so much more in common. And so that desire and that kind of mission led us to figure out how best to achieve that mm. through a profession. And then I think there was a long process of kind of training and learning. Yeah. And for Andy, it was getting his MFA from RISD, which was very uh, rigorous training in like visual graphic design history and techniques, I think. 
which transformed you from like a visionary to somebody who like was kind of battered at the end of it, but still like really <laughs> well versed in like how graphic design works, right? Yeah. And for me, the same happened in architecture. Oh, okay. So, and then we somehow figured out how to combine these two things and bring them to bear on the, so both like using the discipline, but also challenging the discipline. I was going to ask that too, because I know that on your, on the Isometric Studio website, you speak about the convergence of architecture as well as graphic design. So I was going to ask, because like, so who does what with a what? <laughs> or what's the fluidity there in terms of workflow? as well as expertise i used to be so bored by architecture like we would go to dinner with a bunch of acosta's friends and they'd be talking about like the importance of raising a building off the ground and i would be like oh my god i roll <laughs> <laughs> and because i didn't understand like why something so simple as like okay you're raising a building it changes uh, the level at which you view the building on it changes the common ground that we stand on. Yeah. And partly it's because I think architects do a poor job of explaining this in a way that lame people can understand. Mm. Um, and I feel kind of similarly about graphic design, although it's much more sort of, you know, universally, like everybody knows what Photoshop is. Right. Um, so it's more accessible. Well, at least it's a buzzword. <laughs> right. In the very least. And, and so I think that um, we've both come to understand a lot about each other's professions uh, through working together. And it wasn't always like easy, right? Because uh, there are a lot of disciplinary ideas that are entrenched in the disciplines that we're working to both deconstruct and also honor. Because the history of these professions is long and important. Yeah. But we're creating contemporary work that has to somewhat challenge um, the sometimes sort of uh, locked gates of privilege that are within the professions. Yeah. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that in terms of locked gates of privilege. Mm -hmm. uh, so much of your work is about serving communities and also um, you work with a lot of large institutions which I think historically have been about privilege I'm not ashamed of saying that or stating Absolutely, that yeah. yeah so how do you what, what's your entry point with let's say a large institution to begin a conversation about here we, we are going to create this installation here that is about um, opening up a conversation that is different from what you've uh, been pushing for a, mm -hmm. a few hundred mm -hmm. years, let's say. Yeah. What is that entry point? Can you walk me through a little bit of, of first contact to brief to creation yeah. process to realization? Sure. So, yeah, we've been really lucky enough to have gone through these institutions and kind of learn the language and the ways of operating, a lot of rules that are often unstated you know, how to approach certain projects, what words to use to even write a proposal, right? right? So I think the very first step that we do in our process is to put in writing what our vision for the project might be. And oftentimes we're acknowledging and reaffirming the institutional missions, but also opening up new avenues and new ways for them to really realize those visions. And as an outside consultant, we feel like we're able to do that. And not just that, as people of color, as immigrants, having that peripheral viewpoint also gives us a different perspective on that institutional mission. So we, we write about it first. Mm. And I feel like that's a huge intellectual contribution that we make even before we get the project. Right. And I think that as a young firm, I think a lot has to do with the current moment in history. Yeah. So e even before Donald Trump was elected, but um, it, it felt like, you know, there was a, a wave of um, Obama era goodwill, sort of, you know, re racial so-called reconciliation that right. never really happened. We're all on the same rocket <laughs> ship to the stars. Right. Uh, but then at the same time, Ferguson was happening. And, right. You know, black people, particularly black men, were being disproportionately targeted and killed 
by police. Right. And this registered and struck a particular nerve um, in college age people who felt that their stories and their identities were being denied and their personhood was being denied at places like Princeton and elsewhere. So uh, they protested. And in the aftermath of the protest, that's how uh, we were called in to do a job at Princeton. Oh, wow. Um, was that the first entry point or one of the early entry yeah, points? Yeah, I mean, we had done some other work for Princeton before, like small identities for various ident- like centers, like the Women's Center. Right. That, that I thought was important. But uh, the most high-profile one was for this thing called the Carl Field Center, which is basically um, named after the first black Ivy League dean, Carl A. Fields. And it's a center for students of color at Princeton. And it's been around for a while. It used to be called the Third World Center. Michelle Obama was heavily involved with it. Mm. And essentially, um, they wanted to... Essentially, it started as an identity project. Like how the can Third we, World Center. Yeah, is right? that is that term stigmatizing? Yo, yeah, well, absolutely. Yes. And that's why they changed the name. <laughs> yeah, what did they change it to? Carl A. Field Center Oh, that was, so that was the name. Oh, okay. I, sorry. And okay. cultural understanding. Okay, okay. Like I got it. I wasn't, I wasn't tracking saying, on that. <laughs> saying, I was like, like the Third World people. Center. Yeah, exactly. It's like, ugh. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. Leaves you feeling really icky. I know for sure. <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that. And oh, I know how to feel about that. I feel icky. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, frankly, like this center had not been given much attention or resource from the university up until this okay. point. Well, you call it the third world center. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so students protested. They wanted affinity centers where um, their identities were acknowledged in space. Yes. And so acknowledged in space. Right. Right. So they hired us to do initially an identity, but then I turned into a spatial project that redesigned using graphic design the space of the the center, the physical space of the center itself. Right. And we did something that Princeton normally doesn't do, like a lot of color on the walls, a lot of big shapes. Yes. Huge typography. Um, and was this meant to speak to specific cultures or was this meant to speak to boldness and loudness and attention grabbing? Both, because so it had to acknowledge the specific struggles of specific cultures, so black people, Asian people, Latinx people, Native Americans. The uh, basically these racialized minorities needed to be acknowledged both within their groups and also um, the coalition of these minorities, uh, so that you didn't pit groups against each other. Yeah, um, quotations and images from from the past and the present to help illuminate. You know what a Princeton person is today and the kind of uh, narratives we need to support. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was hard. Like there was an architect already working on the job who wanted to bring in like African chairs and Asian pillows and masks and globes and these stereotype tokens of basically uh, people's cultures. Right. And we had to kind of shame them like in a, in a big meeting and say, tell the university that, you know, we're trying to prevent another protest where people are upset because you're stigmatizing them. You're yeah. reducing them to a token. It's like, here, you're that pillow, by the way. You're that blanket exactly. over there. Yeah. You're this over there. So make sure that you take the photo next to that thing that looks like you. Yeah. And what the architect team heard in the focus groups was that students wanted a home on campus and they wanted to feel at home in campus spaces, right? But they interpreted that as meaning to design a literal home. And when you kind of zoom out of that mm. and look at this house that they've designed with like a living room and a kitchen and a, a patio and so forth, it appears to be a colonial home for a white person that has traveled around the world and collected all oh of these God. tokens, yeah. right? 
And that's kind of the worst tier. It's like a Jonathan Adler store. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Jonathan Adler. I have no problem with, with I have a really great throat blanket yes. <laughs> from so, him. So yeah, our, our role ended up being letting them softly know that, you know, this is going to be problematic. Right. And uh, to show them how, how so and what else they could do. What yeah. I love about that work, and I'm looking at it right now, is that... Uh, speaking to the boldness and also like the color palette it is absolutely beautiful and your color combinations are unexpected but still very um so very much rooted in easy to understand information it's it feels off grid but like off grid in a great way which i which i love i'm i'm understanding things quickly i think sometimes especially when um you're walking through these large experiential spaces that mm-hmm. are meant to were you meant to learn for the lack of a better way of expressing that? Sometimes I, I have trouble tracking on occasion, but this feels very, very easy to track on almost every level. Well, I think Thank that you. that's true for a lot of museum didactics. It's like um, the minds of curators are very deep. They understand the topic really well, but very often they're not thinking about the person who has never cared about this idea before, right? Or doesn't have any experience in it. And so very often we tell people that, you know, people don't, given the digital age, people don't necessarily read every word anymore. They kind of parse information at a glance. Yeah. And so it's kind of like a graphic design 101. You just right. create points of contact. You have <laughs> big stuff that you definitely want to get across. Yes. And then if people want to go into those more granular details, that you, th- they have the option. Supplied. Right. Yeah, the exactly. option to investigate for sure. It's like the living version of uh, word clouds. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's we have a huge debt and a huge gratitude to pay to Polish Air. Mm. Of course has put you know big graphics in space to redefine the identity of those spaces and uh, kind of energize them and put positive values in public spaces for a community to experience together and i think what we bring to that um, tradition is kind of a architectural lens so often when we design something we'll make something big and we'll make it red yeah and then we're like what happens when you arrive at the space a second time or a third time, right? And again, for that, I really have to uh, give a shout out to our former de- design director, Nicole Fischetti, who helped us understand because she was so sensitive. Shout out to, to Nicole. Yeah, uh, very sensitive to color and to spatial characteristics. So we were thinking about how to make it very, very bold, but also kind of thoughtfully think about some stereotypes such as, oh, uh, you're an angry person of color, mm. right? We didn't want the big graphics to connote that. So it had to have the softness, the handmade quality of posters that you see in the civil rights movement. Of course, yeah. Um, so all of that. There's just a thinking. hint of softness. There's no exactly. hard edge yes. with anything, but there's boldness. Yes. Yeah. To balance all of that. And I think that graphic designers are particularly sensitive to that, that distinction between something that's just bold yes. and something that has... Um, you know, it's bold, but it, there's a sense of warmth, there's a sense of care. Right. Yeah. Uh, like you're in this space every day, working as a you know a student worker or as a staff member, you don't want to be confronted with you know something that's shouting at you all the time, and that's like a one note piece of graphic design. It's something that each right. visit deepens your understanding. And like, can you imagine working inside of a large Barbara Kruger installation, like having to like focus in there? It's it's hard to maintain. Well, those are really well celebrated and for good reason, right? Yes. Jenny Holzer, Barbara Kruger, Paula Scher, these uh, incredibly revolutionary women. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, at a time uh, where, you know, women's voices were being silenced, I think being able to put those words and project them large into space 
was an achievement. And I think now, you know, we're building off of that, trying to figure out, well, what's the next step? How do we nuance these ideas for spaces that are different, yes. that, are, that are not um, just about sh showing, uh, you know, um, the idea big, mm. but also about intimate moments and, and uh, trying to provide open-ended experiences that don't necessarily tell you how to think. Uh, it doesn't just declare itself. It also sort of invites um, you to have agency within that space. Yes, yeah. of course. Um, so looking at this project, oh, this is a great uh, example of, I think, what some of the best work that you do. I think you have a lot of great projects. So what you've continued that tradition with Princeton on a couple of other things, and a lot of the work that you do also involves a lot of technology. Is that something that you think about right from the onset? Because I know that the Princeton one is a little bit more analog mm -hmm. for sure. But then you know, I see also your work with the um, uh, Who We Are, mm -hmm. uh, with the Who We Are installation, like that feels very, based in tech, also very specific and uh, with uh, data visualization and all those things and projecting those in a dynamic way. What What is that walkthrough of, okay, now we're going to make this very tech heavy or is that something that, you know, was, is in that brief space? Yeah, I, I would say that. So Who We Are, visualizing NYC by the numbers, is an exhibition that's currently on view at the Museum of the City of New York through September 2020. Got it. Oh, and great. So everyone that listens to this can definitely check that out and should check that out. And so they initially approached us, I don't know, like March of last year, April, basically saying we have a rush exhibition that we need to do in time for the 2020 census, and we just got funding to do it. We have a rush exhibition. Right. Is, is that a term that gets thrown around a lot? <laughs> Everybody's always <laughs> in a rush. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, uh, it wasn't a large budget, but they wanted to do something in time for the census, which is really politically important. And particularly yeah. at the time, it had not yet been decided whether the citizenship question would be part of the census. So it was doubly important. And, and it, where did that land? It was later decided that they would not add a citizenship question because of uh, Roberts. There you go. And, That's good. Uh, but a lot of the damage has still been done because many immigrants have this idea already ingrained in their minds that they need to avoid the census at any cost because right. they're giving information to the government and they're, they're getting on the grid the door to yeah. yeah exactly and if you're not counted that means that resource is not proportionally allocated to your community which means that like you, uh, the the funding that your schools get the funding that your roads get mm. any all of that is allocated based on population count and uh, basically an undercount uh, is really really problematic and particularly here in New York City. Yes. Uh, and so where we are basically a city of immigrants. Right. And so you basically have this uh, this museum, which has this high ambition that we want to tell the story of the census. It's important historically, but we also want to make it import, important to contemporary culture. Like, why should you fill out the census in 2020? And So just for the record, though, the census is a safe thing. Yes, for absolutely. For er every human. Everybody regardless of your immigration status, should fill out the census. And That's good to know. Uh, there will be no um, political punishment for it. That's great. So, so yeah, talk, let's talk through that process of how who we are materialized. So they had this uh, sort of big idea that um, people didn't want to fund an exhibition just about the census. Like, they couldn't get the funding. Instead, they wanted to hear about data visualization, which is very hot for some reason right now. <laughs> like, um, so much data. Yeah. Like, Look at it move around. Well, dynamic. Well, not just that, like, yes, it's dynamic, but also it um, it helps us understand the world in a different way, right? Uh, for people who are numerically challenged, like me, uh, <laughs> making it aesthetic can sometimes um, 
help you feel like you can understand large aggregate forms of information mm. that feel like out of your control. Yeah, and a, a lot of our conversations were how do we interface technology and data with real world um, images and metaphors that people can understand and can grasp because you know, similar to like the industrial revolution where a lot of the artists and architects and designers are trying to make sense of this new, um, these new materials and te techniques for the regular human being. Mm. I feel like we're doing something similar now with regard to technology, with social media. We're still trying to make sense of it and artists have a huge role to play in figuring, it, figuring out how this is um, helpful to human life. Yeah. So for example, one of the works in the exhibit is called Wage Islands, and it's by the artist Ekene Ichioma. And there was conversation to add that, and we had worked with Ekene before, so we would send like informal like emails to him and tell him, you know, we're really excited. We hope that your work will make it into this exhibit because he's super busy. He's at MIT. He's leading a program there. Uh. And what the work is is that it's um, basically this black ink under which there's a plexiglass um, island made out of layered uh, acrylic. Mm. And as you press a button, it raises up and it shows you parts of New York that are affordable to you oh. at a certain income range. Oh, right? wow. And the lower income... It's like the more fun version of Street Easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the more real version, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so the lower your income, the more underwater you are. And, and there's only a few points in the city that you're actually able, able to afford afford wow. for housing but it's a statement about climate change it's a statement about you know yeah. people who like if you're in poor neighborhoods you'll be more disproportionately affected by climate change right um there's another piece by pedro cruz called the simulated dendrochronology of sort of you know the simulated dendrochronology dendrochronology it's a very fancy name for saying using tree rings uh as a metaphor to show where people came from. oh i see that's a multicolored tree ring yeah here. I and, see. and the theory is that basically everybody's an immigrant who is in the oh, united wow. states unless you're a native american and so uh some of these political statements, more political statements, are encoded in a way that is made personal through this data aggregation. Mm. And that's surprising because very often we think of data as this hugely impersonal thing and the census as an impersonal thing. Yeah, but it is actually about humans. Exactly. It's about the, it's one of the most deepest, mm -hmm. deeply personal things. Yeah. And one of the most important artists I think featured is Georgia Lupi, who is, was recently made a partner at Pentagram. Oh. And she created a custom installation here where you can make your own data portrait based on answering a couple of questions. Wow. And uh, basic, it's sort of, you know, creating a new kind of way of visualizing data that's very personal to mm. people that isn't based on sort of statistics, um, but based on sort of your uh, your um, sort of optimism for the future, yeah. you know, questions about, you know, like what you believe about yourself. And I think that um, that that was kind of the impetus behind the uh, the show. And our job was to figure out how do you make all of this work come together in <laughs> right. a space that feels distinctive and isn't just another art show. Right. Right. And so we made this super graphic monumental X. X represents a mark. X represents a, a single vote. And then projected the artwork onto it, um, onto this matte translucent uh sort of acrylic material mm. that catches the projection and makes it look like they're suspended in space. Oh, wow. And so you get this sense of like this glowing, um, like ethereal movement in the space uh, that also is grounded in a monumental shape. Mm. 
What do you, well, what's the level of research that has to go into a project like this? Because uh, we have a lot of creatives on here where their work is based in subjectivity, um, as well as based in personal aesthetics. And I know that, that uh, that's a lot of what graphic design is on a very base level, but there's some hardcore data and facts that your team has to represent. How do you bring that in? And then when do you say like, okay, we've done enough research? <laughs> or, and what's the level of rigor Mm -hmm. uh, research rigor that you have to throw in and who gets, who has to check mark that? I'm, I'm asking that out of pure curiosity. Mm -hmm. I think that um, for an exhibition like that one, um, a lot of the the specific research is happening, is being done by the artist. But mm. for, for us as designers, we have to basically digest all of the information that's out there, as well as all of the different precedents. Um, one thing we get from the architectural discipline is also precedent study. Like we actively search out examples of similar works and figure out what we want to take from that and what we want to leave behind and how we evolve this disciplinary um, uh, w uh, discourse, I guess, both in graphic design and architecture. So oftentimes what we're doing is kind of taking in all of that and coming up with the simplest distillated um, distilled <laughs> version of like how to represent this. Yes. And for this exhibit, our fear was that we had seen several art shows where the art was great, but when it all comes together, it looks a little messy or sure. a little, you know, uh, a little congested or there isn't a congested. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a unifying like framework. Right. So that's what we wanted to create. A lot of these artworks are available online or have been shown elsewhere, how do we create a moment in this place and time mm. for this art to exist and for people to kind of take something uh, from it? Uh, so creating that sense of place, I think, is really important to us. And so we always do options. We have three options in this case. And um, the they client chose the most ambitious yes, one. Oh, really? Oh, that that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Well, the yeah. director there is incredible, um, Whitney. <laughs> and also the deputy director, yes. and chief curator, Sarah Henry. Like, she just... This Extremely museum is just brave, like yeah. very, very brave, willing to do the craziest one, <laughs> so long as it's within budget and sure. you, you know how to build it. <laughs> they all go along with you, and it's it's kind of an interesting ride, you know, to be trusted by these kind of world class institutions yeah. to do something ambitious and particularly something emotional. And I think that that's something we don't often talk about when we talk about the work. Like mm -hmm. your question about research is really important because you know uh, the research is not just into data and data and facts and like how to build something and you know the architecture and all this is which is important but um very often is looking into ourselves as, as people who are part of the demographic yeah uh, that might be shortchanged let's say if the census goes wrong it's the immigrants that will be affected it's yeah. the people of color it's the the queer people people that might be undercounted because they're too afraid to go fill out the census and very often we just kind of glaze over that fact in the design process but we're always thinking about it. We're always thinking about how, why um, people are excluded and how they're often excluded in these very sort of surreptitious, kind of insidious ways that are just below the surface. Mm. And you're told that your story is not important, therefore you're not allowed to declare your story and you don't count. Right. Yeah. That's even That even happens in bureaucracy. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it's just like a matter of course that like these stories get edited out. And I, we always make an effort to try to like you know, for example, you're showing a whole wall of um, of infographics and you're showing mostly images of white men who are the ones conducting the surveys and the importance of showing like an image of the person who uh, is 
actually going to be affected most if this goes wrong and try to make that case to the museum. And oh, them, that's interesting. And them taking that on board and like sort of, you know, making a large image of, of a Somali woman, you know, and yes. and I think um, it, it might seem kind of pat or like uh, sometimes this diversity things can get out of hand. It's like one person of each color. Yeah. Um, and we don't want that either, right? It's not supposed to be an essentializing gesture. But at the same time, it's important that the representation occurs because the museum is for the public. Right. And the public is composed of every kind of person. So you, you pose a really interesting situation here because you're right. I think diversity, inclusion and diversity initiatives, when, with the way they're visualized as well as, as the way they manifest themselves, can be very over the top to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm seeing a, a corona billboard that's dealing with you know diversity inclusion in some weird way. It, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, okay, at what point do you, are you, Shout out to Corona. I love drinking Coronas. <laughs> shout out to Corona. Shout out to Fast and Furious and uh, and uh, Dominic Toretto and that whole family and their Corona loving selves. But that said, uh, sometimes you you do feel okay. Is this a cash grab or is this loudness for the sake of loudness or is this just an infiltration of some sort of brand or institution into a demographic that they have nothing to do with? Mm. How do you how do you cross that line? How do you how do you nuance those pieces? I know you deal with a lot of academic academic institutions where you know these conversations are validated or they're more necessary than most but mm-hmm. what what is what are those levers and sensitivities there yeah i i mean i don't know if we have all the answers or you know it's a constantly evolving conversation and everybody kind of make mistake makes mistakes yeah and, but i think it's important to kind of keep an open mind to uh, stay f- stay committed to the cause which is for us um, to give greater representation to people who have historically not been the center of the stories that are being told in the mainstream and in the uh, in central spaces yeah and interestingly like some of the most interesting work is happening in the startup world or in the technology worlds Um, and that's you know when we started we were basically working on nonprofits and then we were doing startups. Mm. And one of the stories from startups that really stays with us is Function of Beauty, which is a totally personalized um, shampoo um, brand. And Zahir Dossa, who Andy had worked with previously, who had done work in the developing world before, wanted to create a completely aesthetic, like, very beautiful brand that had that acknowledged different hair types and it's the simplest thing ever but it's also super um inclusive because yes. hair I'm, sorry, is, I'm seeing the animation right now yeah. of of the hair strand right. changing uh, shape and form it is absolutely beautiful i think that this project kind of encapsulates our mission as well which is how do we use aesthetics as a political tool to center people's stories not in a way that feels rushed or, you know, done for the sake of just putting people in the center, but in the most beautiful, dignified way possible. How do we use image, typography, right. color, and so I think forth. that's what, actually, that's a great thing that you just said, because I think what your work does, it brings dignity. There's dignity associated with everything here, and there's never a... I feel never a talking down to anyone. It's more of like, we can all really feel, we can all stand on this. Thank yeah. you. And I think that the real challenge is... Um, that very often when designers do this kind of work, yeah. right? Like uh, work that's you know, has a social motivation, that's uh, about dignifying excluded people, there 
uh, they are thought of as less than for some reason, or at least historically they have. Hmm. So I, I feel I like, like that's so different now. It's, it's really turned around. It's changed. Mm-hmm. It's changed. And uh, I feel like a lot of people are interested in diversity and inclusion. Sure. But even like, I mean, I love AIGA, but I feel like, you know, both nationally and here in New York, the kind of diversity and inclusion initiatives that have gone on, at least, you know, um, in the past, were very much kind of like token kind of things like these kind of things that yeah. oh, we have to do them because this is important now right. politically it's like a broccoli approach to <laughs> content i feel which is which is really depressing because why um we should think of inclusion as part of uh design right as, as like sort of you know in, intimately enmeshed in design culture yes and i think very often it's not and uh, we have these distinctions between high and low taste or good and bad design that are, are really much sort of sort of uh, culturally enforced. And I think that's sad. It is. <laughs> I mean, my view is that we should celebrate and welcome any and all effort to, yeah. to do this work. Um, today, later today, Andy's going to be seeing Slave Play uh, for like the oh, third time. I really? Think he loves is theater. that what you're doing later today? Yeah. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and one of the messages of the show without giving away the, uh, the plot is, you know, we all have certain privileges. Yes. And we all have certain ways in which we're marginalized. And oftentimes there's nothing we can do about it. Like one person cannot go back and change history or change structural forms of oppression. But what we can do is be mindful of it mm-hmm. um, and uh, just go move through the world with that mindfulness. So uh, if we think, if we kind of bring that idea to these historically very, very white and privileged professions mm-hmm. and disciplines like graphic design and architecture, like you can't change them overnight, right? But I, I think we should celebrate uh, the work that is being done. Yep. And yeah, we can contribute that. Yeah. to that, right? And we can kind of... Uh, kind of catalyze and and help move it forward and so forth and like i said we all will make mistakes like yeah, that i have is problems inevitable. with like people of color be turned into diversity toolkits like oh, this word like can you get a toolkit for this and i'm like well, what the fuck you know like <laughs> what does that mean yeah yeah talk me through that well i, I feel like people want an easy one-stop solution mm. to their diversity. Oh, problems. like this is how we represent X? Is that that type of approach? Yes. Oh, so, like here are the rules of engagement for this. So we're writing a, a book for Princeton about inclusive spaces. Okay. It's called Spaces of Belonging. And we're using case How study. far along are you in that process? About, I would say halfway. To halfway. Th- yeah. Um, we and, have a draft. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it explores different kinds of interventions, whether it's sculpture or artworks or, uh, you know, environmental installations, architecture. And it asks um, the viewer to not seek a toolkit, like not try to do a checklist approach to how do you make a space feel inclusive? because that's not what design is about. Design is specific to program, it's specific to context. And so everything will have a different design based on your designer and what their approach is. And all these diverse approaches should still be celebrated. There's not one inclusive aesthetic. Yeah, At the same time, there are certain uh, sort of ideas that perhaps could be helpful. Like if you put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's being represented in this space, is the best solution to have like smiling people of color looking down, you know, from a space <laughs> in this kind of stupid way that is just <laughs> going to reinforce their marginalization? Yeah. Or is it to tell their stories with sophistication and dignity as you would tell the story of a white hero? Yeah. You know, like, and I think that that's um, increasingly present in film 
uh, whether it's uh, Lulu Wong's The Farewell or um, Barry Jenkins and Moonlight. Right. These stories are becoming... Shout out to Aquafina, just won the Golden Globe. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's amazing. Um, these stories are becoming more and more specific. Yeah. And that specificity actually generates a more universal conversation, which is something that people don't understand. Very often, it's like, oh, is that story too specific to include? And it's actually, if you are able to talk about the specific, that's what people are able to emotionally connect yeah. with. When it's too specific, it's like, what's what what's so... Uh, there have been so many specific uh, white male heroes exactly over the last few hundred of hundreds Super, of years superheroes exactly like, you know, war heroes you know like regardless of what genre of film it is we've seen every kind yeah and villains as well exactly <laughs> and so where is that you know and i think that um, where's that opportunity for you know the, the the diversity of hero storytelling exactly yeah so i i would say that um things are changing i agree with Vikas that we should celebrate efforts that are being made by all kinds of institutions right and we should challenge them to do better yeah like quickly can you tell a story about maybe an instance when you felt that an institution had pushed something on you or like what's a what's a lack of a better way to say it what's a horror story here uh, <laughs> of uh, inst- we don't have to name names oh no <laughs> so we'll tell many. you okay. we'll oh tell yes you. to name all the names <laughs> with email addresses well so google um, okay. was one of our i've clients. heard of them mm-hmm. and they uh have a research wing called jigsaw okay and jigsaw had been doing research on the black community and police violence is this ba- the google uh group here or the mm-hmm. google group out west in new york city okay and essentially, it's very uh, thoughtful, important research that they're doing. And we can't talk too much about the product that they're developing. But they had been sort of working for a year okay. um, with uh, outside consultants who do ethnographic research to try to understand um, the police and why uh, the police have so much fear around black the black community. And then they thought, oh, it's really important that we understand the black community's perspective as well. And so they commissioned an ethnographic study of that side of the conversation. Uh, a black researcher named Amber Fields, who was really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, uh, they had gathered this information and put it in a PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. And when people from the Jigsaw team saw the PowerPoint presentation, they were like, I didn't learn anything new at all. Which is really tragic and really sad. And partly because the PowerPoint presentation was, you know, there were some quotations, but it was very like mugshot like bad ugly photographs of people oh. and like tables of like like kind of things that said like how not to get shot or it something like that. It was very like technical. That. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And technical so if, in the sense that technical like uh, there it, were numbers, there were bullet points, oh, okay. there was like how to fix clinical. Very clinical. Exactly. It felt like a clinical study. And so the people were not being given dignity at all. And oh. the aesthetics that we talk about uh, was not present. And sometimes people think aesthetics is just, oh, making it look pretty. But actually, aesthetics is so fundamental to our way of registering the world that mm-hmm. it's about... And human stories. Yeah, it's about making people look human <laughs> and making yeah. people look three-dimensional. And yeah. so... You don't want to keep them a statistic or a number or just data. Right. And so by the time we were asked to be involved, they said... Uh, they had figured out that they needed a different vehicle for telling <laughs> Figure it stories. out. And so they said, okay, why don't we commissioned exhibition designers to come in, like sort of build a temporary exhibit where our team can gather and meet each other and have this conversation about this really harrowing topic Mm. in a serious way. And that was a really thoughtful approach, but they didn't have any pictures or any quotations that we could use. So we asked them to send us to um, cities that they had interviewed people in, which is Atlanta, 
Georgia, um, Oakland, California, and DC, and to re-interview people mm. and to photograph them properly in these dignified ways. And that oh, was that's, the first step. So it was like a whirlwind three-day, like flying across the country, photographing people. Oh my gosh. Uh, trip. And, but we thought it was really important. Because Interviewing new people or no, the same people? Some of the same people. So, oh, okay. So selected participants from their study. Understood. And three days? Yeah. Yep. And I'm it, looking at the yeah. exhibition right now. I can't believe this all happened in three days. I mean, I can because I've seen <laughs> crazy shit happen. Yeah. The photography was yes. three days. But yeah. Yeah. And so we had a couple of weeks to put together the exhibit, which ended up being these crisscrossing panels to sort of uh, show the various intersections of what it means to be a, um, a black person in this country. And it's not just the moment of the police encounter, but everything that precedes it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And, and and goes into the history, it goes into um, literature and how these stories have been told and how the policing has been a historic part of the American story and it goes all the way back to slavery yeah. where police was created to catch slaves, right? So when you look at all of that historic discrimination, not just slavery, but after that, um, segregation, housing discrimination, discrimination in uh, education, an opportunity, you realize that, and and th- through recent projects by Tanahasi Coates mm-hmm. and the 1619 project by the New York Times, we really get an understanding that this is a kind of an original sin of America, and only now we're starting to come to terms with it. Right? It's kind of the biggest shadow on the country's history. Mm. So, the history goal, of police brutality, and also like the, the initial creation of the police organization is that what we're saying as being part of the larger problem of discrimination against african americans yeah against black americans in this country and also the resilience the joy the you know just this sheer force of resistance and um overcoming in the face of this adversity, right. like all the different the continuing groups, efforts of the civil rights movement yes. across all across As the being board. So, present. so when we got to a certain point in the exhibit, the team got a little worried at Google and they said, you know what, we want to show only the narratives that we've gathered, but we don't really want to go into the history and, and uh, we don't want to go into all of these different aspects that, pe- that, that people have mentioned. Hmm. And at that point, we had to say, you know what, you're going to put um, these super vulnerable narratives out there on these panels. And your engineers, who are mostly you know, white men, to mm-hmm. be honest, are going to come in and say, that's just one person's story. I have a black friend. He doesn't face this situation. And so we said it is crucial to back these stories up with a historic framework. Yes. To help people understand that this discrimination is pervasive, it is historic, and it's deep within the culture. And at that point, we said, you know, um, this is very important to us, and we would be embarrassed if this were not included. We would hmm. not want to be associated with the project. Um, and so, <laughs> this was not oh, the so first this is time. Your team saying that yes, we would be embarrassed exactly. by, by not covering this yeah and so we basically wow, that's really threatened brave. to back out yeah and i, mean, I will say this is not the first time that we've had time. to do this wow because i mean okay so it's great to uh, be able to have google as a client yes it's great to be able to have clients period of course um, i think the challenge is that like at what point do you draw a line and t- can you be on the same page and ultimately they were uh they agreed and, and kudos to them for being on the same page and also being mm-hmm. allowed to 
Yeah. Be corrected. Yeah, but I think it takes it takes time and it takes that uh, ev- everybody just have a measure of courage. Yeah. And as a designer, if you can have uh, the courage for your client, they can feel like, okay, maybe we need to have this discussion right away and see whether or not we agree. And if we agree, then maybe we need to sort of change course. Mm. Um, and I think it's hard because very often when you're working in bureaucracies, like you're saying, like uh, you have to go to somebody at, <laughs> who, who had decision-making power. Yeah, right? of and, course. And, um, Not just a messenger. Most times people want to avoid that person because they're super busy or like they've been snapped at by the person before. <laughs> uh, so it's like um, having to have the courage as a designer to go to that person and say, hey, we want to do the best job we can. Yes. And this is really important to you and it's also really important to us. And we want to make sure that we don't make the problem worse. Right. And I think that you don't want to make the problem worse. Yeah. yeah. That's a great way to walk in there. Yeah. And so uh, nine times out of 10 people are pretty. Um, when you frame it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, um, yeah, it, it's, it's it's interesting because I didn't sort of think that there was so much drama involved in design. But I think um, when it has to do with people's identities and their personhood and us both being not black people. Um, but being charged with uh, telling this story felt like a huge responsibility and to, to do it in a way that's sensitive, that's thoughtful, yeah. and that doesn't close off the conversation. Yeah, of course. Like, Let me ask about the about what you bring in terms of identity to the table, uh, um, both b- being uh, of Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese descent, as well as Pakistani descent. Like, mm-hmm. what, what level of uh, your personal identities do you bring to the table um, at the jump? And also, how do you, um, are there projects that you pick or has there been a world where you're like, oh, wow, this is so perfect for me because of my identity? Mm-hmm. Or do you just love to, to do the research, put in the, put in the rigor and, and you know, speak um, with other communities? Yeah, we, we used to not bring our identity to the table. Um, I guess we were afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also had this desire to just be a New York City design firm, you know, <laughs> sure. and not be which which you are, which we are, <laughs> yes. but not be defined as like, oh, they're the the Chinatown design firm. <laughs> <or whatever. Yeah. laughs> oh, uh, actually, that sounds kind of uh, dope, though. It yeah, does, it does though, right? Yeah, in 2020, the Chinatown design firm. Exactly. Yeah, but now <laughs> we're proud of it. Yeah. Like hell yeah, we used to avoid like doing like Asian American centered projects. So, for example, we would never have done something oh, like man. the Happy Family Night Market because right. oh, there's so much like, money in Asia, though. How do you not? Well, not I, to put it there. No, I know, but Not like, to put it there. I, I think it's more that um, people associate, like, at least historically, it's kind of like Asian design looks as very gaudy yeah. and like very cheap, right? Um, and, and then Chinatown is—it's like, the knockoff. It's a visual knockoff yeah, of something else, exactly. And I and I think that that's because a lot of. Um, they, they misunderstand, I think, a lot of where uh, Asians are coming from. We're talking about, like, first and second generation immigrants and the difference. Right. Second generation Asians, a lot of them, like, are into hip-hop culture. Yeah. And particularly those who grew up in the 90s. Totally. Um, and oh, I wow. Think, I feel like you're just speaking, like, right through. <laughs> you're you're funneling into my cortex right now. <laughs> right. And I, and I think a lot of it has to do with trying to find a narrative of resistance. Yeah. Um, both to uh, feeling like you're discriminated against by the dominant culture but also by your parents' culture. Yeah. Because you feel like you're alienated from those goals, right? You don't want to achieve yeah. their, their American dream. You want to achieve your own. That looks actually there, very There's similar. the natural uh, desire to rebel against your parents. There's even that, like, kid stuff putting into it. And then mm-hmm. I remember when my parents came here and then me growing up in the 90s, like you're saying, there, I didn't have a, a group to lean into. It was like, oh, that's what the Asian American looks like in this landscape. I felt like everyone had to mm-hmm. exactly. adapt or land into their own space. Well, so yeah. there's a very fractured aesthetic for um, what what 
Asian American design looks like. Yeah. Because it's not Asian for sure. Right. It's not like what looks like uh like um it's inherited from Asian culture. Right. It's also definitely not like uh it's incorporates parts of other cultures like black culture, Latinx culture. Right, right. Um it sometimes It's eclectic. It's an eclectic. Well, and then aesthetic. some people like people work for like firms like Pentagram or Two by Four and they produce more of that kind of work. So it's like uh, they do white culture too, and so we're, we're really good at being chameleons. But, yes, um, there isn't a specific aesthetic that represents our culture itself because we're in this strange uh, kind of no man's land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, uh, working with Asian and Asian American clients, we've learned so much about this kind of intergenerational experience. Yes. Um, for example, we heard in focus groups for Princeton conference that Asian Americans do so well in school. But when you look at corporate America, there is this thing called the bamboo ceiling where mm. people will not progress to leadership positions in corporations yeah. because of uh, entrenched um, bias. Yes. And so a generation again, kind of has to go away <laughs> in yeah. order for that yeah. to slowly break. And at the same time, I mean, I think that there's also this generational conversation that's waiting to happen where parents who migrated, like I guess Andy's parents, um, have this nostalgia for where they were coming from. Mm. And this desire for their kids to carry on that cultural tradition. And the kids are kind of facing the situation where they're growing up as Americans. Yep. And they want their parents to kind of catch up with this new context that, they, that they've been raised in. I feel like my experience is quite different because I came here as an almost adult. Right. And... Uh, but and your still, family is still back in Pakistan? My mom lives in uh, Brooklyn. Oh, now. okay. Yeah, so that's a lo- another story. <laughs> there you go. That, uh, but yeah, I have some family back in Pakistan. Okay. And uh, but, but, you know, I grew up in a post-colonial time in a country that's kind of been ravaged historically by uh, 200 years of British colonial rule and the politics of divide and rule and the ideology of white supremacy that kind of undergirded all of that. And, uh, and, and so, you know, bringing all of that here, I do have a certain sense of freedom. Like my experience is very different from one of your other guests, uh, Ksenia Samarskaya. Who oh was yeah. Talking about, oh my gosh. Shout out to Ksenia. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She was talking about such a fire know, plug. Absolutely. But like leaving a place and saying goodbye forever. Right. Yeah. That wasn't my experience because already technology was connecting the world at that time. And right. so for me, it didn't feel like such a huge step. I felt like I was more international. Yes. At the same you're time... You're starting with a global citizen mindset, yes. right? Yes. And so it wasn't this huge uh, tearing apart of like my previous life. But when I walk and move around in New York City, my like the people who look like me are mostly like cab drivers or people who work at delis. Oh, that's you interesting. Know, I don't have a lot of role models, especially in the design professions. Yeah. So yeah, East I think Asians. there is our are super proximate to whiteness, you know, when compared to South Asians. And I think that's something that only through conversation have we been able to disentangle. Yeah. I think it's really challenging to notice like all the various shades within the Asian community that prevent alliances from happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I think uh, Andy and I have such vastly different experiences that we kind of bring to the table. And so we're both kind of editing each other sometimes, but more often we're, um, egging each other on, like you're right, that was wrong. You know, go for it. Like, call it well, out. Yeah, when, when people like you'll walk into a meeting uh, in like a, some corporate building, and somebody will say like, "Oh, you look so young," 
It's like, oh, okay, so you're commenting on the way I look. Oh, <laughs> you're com- wow. You're commenting on I my race. You're commenting this. my race, but you're really you're talking about my age. Yeah. You know, like, uh, you're basically saying that I don't have experience because I don't look like you. Oh, you know, like, wow. and yeah. and often it's like unpacking the comment. And so people are a little like smart or wise enough to not like say something directly racist. You do look young though. You both look very young. We do. <laughs> yes. Thank you. But, <laughs> but I think like uh, Asian doesn't raise in in this room. I don't know if that's cool to say or not, but I will say. It. <laughs> and I think uh, it's it's fascinating to me how um, how there isn't uh, a specific aesthetic for. Asians uh, creating design, and so you kind of have mm. to create one. And, oh, interesting. What do, what do you mean in in relation to what? Like, like what's the what's the white alternative to that? Just basically Swiss modernism, Swiss modern well, design. Is that maybe or anything? Like, it is inflected with white culture, right? Like, right. Uh, so, for example, when you make something like the Happy Family Night Market graphics, yeah. which is supposed to be a one day festival celebrating uh, the Asian diaspora, right. And you kind I of see explore. some friends in these photos. <laughs> cool. Shout out to shout out to Vicky from uh, Banana Magazine cool. <laughs> in a couple of these. Cool. Yeah, and, it's beautiful. And I think the 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 challenge is that like, well, what is an what does an Asian night market look like? Right. That's supposed to represent all these different cultures, but not white culture. <laughs> right. And I think uh, we just settle on a specific metaphor, which is this idea of unfolding, mm-hmm. right? Like basically the folds are deep and you have to kind of like sort of really deconstruct and also reconstruct what um, the Asian diaspora looks like. Right. And also acknowledging and being okay with the history of con- colonialism and the history of how British culture and American culture have so influenced colonial cultures like uh, basically you can't ignore it and so why bringing a level of kindness uh, to our interactions with white people on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. who you know are maybe benefiting from historic events and structures but are potential allies right Are, are partners in the work that needs to happen to make the world a more equitable place and connected to which is the 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 story of climate change and uh, and resource distribution of resources um that's really important work that needs to happen very quickly right so yeah that's kind of a lot of what we think about so <laughs> yeah so the a- asian yeah. aesthetic i think we have some inspirations like there's aaron Nye, who's a taiwanese designer mm-hmm. um who else yeah i mean I mean, there's some really wonderful Japanese designers like uh, Koichi Sato, mm-hmm. um, amazing poster designers, or even like manga, you know, like... And oh, book yeah. designer from Taiwan as well. His name is Wang Zhihong. Yeah. Uh, like Wang Zhihong. Yeah, amazing book jacket designer. But those are... So a lot of what's been celebrated in, um, in Taiwan specifically is because those two designers, they were the first people from Taiwan to join AGI. Um, this like secret club of like... <laughs> fancy graphic designers. Oh, really? Um, oh. In Taiwan? <laughs> no, no, no. In uh, internationally. Oh, okay. I'll, oh, AGI. I'll, I, don't, yeah. I don't even know what that is. Do, am I Allianz Graphique International. <laughs> okay. Okay. And like uh, a selected number of American designers are part of this as well. And really? so they have these conferences, and they're like invite only. Um, oh, am I missing out on something? <laughs> you might be. <laughs> oh, damn. But, okay. Um, recently, they launched a, a really nice website that shows their members' work, and it's super, super beautiful. Oh my god. Okay. But. I'm feeling FOMO already. <laughs> What's interesting is that these two designers um, basically make very artistic-looking designs. So they're yeah. essentially artists uh, that are making CD jackets or um, like uh, 
book jacket covers and so forth. But I, I read it a little differently. I, I, it's definitely artistic and aesthetic, but to me, like the most interesting defining feature is abstraction. Mm. And uh, this idea of taking all of the history and all of the precedent and creating something super contemporary through abstraction. Mm. And that allows new culture and new cultural imagination, new interpretations to happen. And that's our goal too. Like yeah. we're not doing it in the exactly the same way. We're right. op operating in American context, but ultimately the goal is to not not fall back on nostalgia, mm -hmm. which is you know make America great again. Sure, kind of ideology. But think about. <laughs> oh, how I've never thought about that line as something based in nostalgia, but I guess Absolutely. you're right. Yeah, but how do we move forward together? Yeah. How do we you know uh, make the world better? <laughs> right. So I think that aesthetically, it has to do for me. Uh, with abstraction yes. and with uh, the, the a very uh, distilled form of all of this history yeah. uh, coming together and, in visuals. And I, I think like because of Akasa, I've become really exposed to architects like Sana, who built the new museum, and also this one really wonderful project called Grace Farms in Connecticut. Um, they dwell in the world of abstraction and contemporary abstraction. So like even if they're building a building that's supposed to look like a river or whatever, um, it's like really skillful and beautiful and when you're in the space you feel like limitless possibility because yeah. you're, uh, you're being imagined anew as a person who in, is created in architecture anew and I think that what's um, interesting about graphic design is that it's so full of symbols yes and, yes. and, and so full of um, these sort of cultural references that you have to be very careful like uh, not to just dwell in the past or for us not to dwell in sort of things that may look trendy now or <laughs> like that like you know doing because it looks cool or just because it looks cool that's okay there's a time and place for right. that but it's so perfectly fine yeah <laughs> perfectly but, fine but to so much of our work to. is about i work at mtv I, I, <laughs> yeah. I have to oftentimes i have to just make it cool it's like right, yeah fine. yeah um, which is really powerful too and right. only in the last couple of years we've started to kind of feel comfortable enough to go into that realm of joy and just share cool. You know, right, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's Although really all, I think all your work is cool, to be honest. I think this is all so dope. But I will say, yeah, that we've, we've slowly kind of begun, uh, you know, opening up and letting ourselves do work that feels a little less... Um, weighed down by, you know, uh, all by, of by stories, ideas. by yes. specific cultural storytelling. Yeah. 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 Can I ask a question about... Uh, about commercialism or, or essentially sure. like, cause, cause your team deals with such big spaces, great experiential spaces. What do you think about the, the refinery 29s of the world or the, the uh, museum of pizzas of the world, the color museums of the world where it, where it is about a 45 minute paid walkthrough, mm -hmm. um, essentially just an Instagram um, factory. <laughs> what, like, what do you guys think about that? And there, also, there's one called Slumu Institute that's just slime. <laughs> I've <laughs> heard about the Slumu Institute. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that in a in a deck the other day. I was like, oh, wow, Slumu Institute. Uh, we hate it. <laughs> no, we, we, don't, we don't. We don't. We uh, don't. I think it's great that um, that these kind of immersive experiences are becoming democratized in a yeah. way that mm -hmm. is making museums exciting again. Yeah, and so I. I think that in general we support, um, and some of these things are even super fun to be part right. of. But they always kind of end in a ball pit, right? <laughs> and so, and so, 
it's, it's so funny you say that because it's so true. It's, <laughs> yeah. I, wow, I've never thought of it like that. So they're kind they of like... They all end in a fucking ball pit. <laughs> it's kind of like an uh, adult playground that's very highly aesthetically controlled, right? <laughs> and and the question is... But why does it end in a ball pit? Is that because, just a big ex- exuberant moment? Yes. I'm it's like, it's like oh, it's a moment of... Because like these things like to copy each other, right? Like, mm. and the, whatever, it's a museum of pizza or museum of ice cream or museum of Have you ever seen the Museum of Sex? Uh, yes. Because I actually enjoy that museum. I think actually they have great experiential design. I think their storytelling's um, different, interesting. <laughs> it is different for sure. But I think what they're interested in, um, uh, uh, what is it? The, they're confronting you, but also they're confronting you with interesting a context of recontextualizing something which has mm-hmm. otherwise been um, probably, you know, more uh, a taboo, right? Of course, yeah. it's called the Museum of Sex. But then even that ends in a, a, a boob bounce house, yeah, right? So you could, you know. And I think it's important for museums and cultural institutions, educational institutions, not draw s- such strict boundaries between what is commercial and what yes. is cultural. Sure. I think that both of these things exist at the same time. Even the most well-cultured people participate in commerce. Right. Uh, we buy things, we use things, we go to amusement parks, you know, you watch TV. You may watch different TV, you may watch different movies depending on your taste, but your taste shouldn't have to sort of stand for everybody else's taste. Yeah, no, that's and, true. And I believe that, you know, in the proliferation of these kind of museums, like, great. It's good, like, um, like the Nike store. Have you been there recently? Oh, the innovation store, it, the it, one in Midtown? Yeah, it, it 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 basically is like a museum. You that know? place is crazy. Yeah, and I think that uh, creating these experiences um, is part of our responsibility as designers. Right. You know? I think about the Nike store, and I think about all the screens that have mm-hmm. to just, they have to put content on all those screens. <laughs> uh, even the the floor screens that that uh, the racks sit on top of. I'm like, damn, someone well, has to design that. Design that. That's yeah. that sounds so annoying to me. Yeah. But it's a it's a great uh, walkthrough. Yeah, and I think it's cultural production, and we look at it as inspiration. We'll go to these and you know take pictures and see how how it can inform our work because it's so, very important yeah, for us if- to constantly be immersed. In, in everything that's happening. Yeah. But I will say, like, we were approached by a potential client that was that is making a huge ride in Times Square. And, um, well, they were going to do one... When is that going to happen? <sighs> can you say? Can you say? It. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. Actually. Gotcha. Uh, but it's going to be like a flyover New York kind of experience. And the same client approached us for another experience that was going to be weather-related. So these Instagrammable moments where you go experience rain or snow, mm. or whatever, hurricane. And <laughs> when we were on the call, like my question was, are you going to deal with climate change? And they were just like silent. They're like, They're whoa, like, what, what? <laughs> and oh, we're like, wow. you know, maybe uh, maybe we're not the best partners because you know we'll ev- inevitably want to think about those issues and right. we'll feel frustrated if we sign on to this project. Like even if we can technically achieve these goals, yes. You know, maybe there's somebody else out there who can really have the Make same alignment. Yeah. yeah. So, so, though, so that being said, like it, it sounds like you, your team is actively staying in this space. You desire to stay in yeah. this space. So theoretically, if if Disney reached out and was like, we need a large Star Wars installation, maybe that's not the best example here, but that is a project that you'd be like, mm, maybe, maybe well, it depends. not so much. If it has I like a feminist lens. Yeah. <laughs> or if it okay, has so some no hard nose. Yeah, no, no, no hard nose. No, I, as long as our, our, our basic thing is like, if... <sighs> If you're uh, like we we will explore a project where we have some influence yes. to make the world a better place, but if 
a client is actively like hurting puppies or similar, <laughs> then we're gonna. There you uh, go. Thankfully, yeah. Like, if there's a Coella Deville situation happening here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying. Andy. Well, I, I think that. Um, so often, like, uh, so in school, like, uh, I saw a lot of people look down on, quote, commercial design mm. or design that had to do with popular culture. Yeah. And this really upset me because I'm like, that's literally the culture that most people consume media through. Right. right. And so you're giving up the influence of graphic designers on a lot of culture just because you think it's too base. And I think that's not right like mm -hmm. it's the job of the designer to be versatile enough to like deal with the museums agree at, at the agree. very highest end and also the museum of pizza like if <laughs> yeah. you can if you can channel um if you can channel values into popular culture that's a high achievement agree yeah. oh that's yeah. a great way to think about that definitely yeah um so can i talk a little bit about uh partnership now so uh it's my understanding you two are married right Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, cool. Oh, so you're actually, fun fact, you're the second married couple I've ever had on the microphones, <laughs> um, the previous being uh, Nicole and Noreen. Um, um, actually, that's episode two. Uh, that's actually coming out this Monday. This episode is going to come out a little bit later, but that's aside. I'm thinking about like what I have to edit tonight before I, I drop. Uh, but uh, what, what I'm so interested in terms about partnerships is the uh, the way that you two communicate with each other because it's it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge communicating um, with your team, like in an office space professionally, mm -hmm. then going home, you have to be human beings to each other mm -hmm. and then put and then theoretically, you know, put the put the laptops away but how do you manage that how do you manage those expectations between yourselves and between your teams and and is is the communication like extremely fluid by this time i imagine it is <laughs> should i start yeah yeah so we actually live and work in the same place too. okay so our hours are 10 a.m to 6 p.m we have four other team members that come in at 10 and leave like 6 p.m. sharp so we can have our home back sharp uh, get the hell out of here yeah. <laughs> so in that sense, flicking the lights on and off yeah, <laughs> like a yeah, third grade yeah. <laughs> so uh i think that i really admire I, I it's the joy of my life to work with andy because our relationship is not just um it i i feel like it's a it's like works on many different levels and intellectual is a is a big component of it for me like constantly being like intellectually stimulated because mm. andy is just full of ideas <laughs> and he's always thinking and he's always like trying to improve projects and uh you know he has this way of getting to the root of the problem immediately yeah like instead of because i tend to be a little bit process oriented or like trying to figure out how to how to achieve something over time um, Andy's gonna, this is the problem. We got to fix it right now, uh, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> I love that. Um, so yeah, I think that over time we've uh, fine-tuned the way we communicate. It can be very, very hard. Um, therapy helps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which, uh, oh, do you both actively engage in that? Yeah. Yes. Oh, gotcha. Separately totally together, connected together. Kind of together. Dip in? Oh, that's so yeah. interesting. I totally support therapy for anybody in any kind of like. Oh, any I kind love of that. Yeah. 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 Helps us communicate better to express ourselves better, which which had been hard before. And, uh, you know, to define our boundaries and, and the ways in which we interact with each other and also with our team. Yeah. Um, it used to be, especially when we started out, that it was hard for us to figure out how to orient ourselves in relation to our team. Like, are these our best friends? Over time, we realized that, you know, no, uh, we can find our friend group elsewhere, but we need to have a really great relationship with our team 
that feels like honest and where we can be honest about our feedback, mm -hmm. but they don't have to be our best friends. Like, you know, we don't have to be hanging out all the and time. You don't have to crush somebody to get your point across. Right. Like I'm, because of the places that I had worked uh, before where like you, you'd be made to feel bad for doing something that you, people didn't like. Yeah. Uh, not just um, like, oh, you have failed, you know, it was, <laughs> it was the, the kind of message. Yeah. And I You've officially failed. We all saw that. So yeah. Yeah, think about that one. <laughs> I realized that you don't have to do that. You know, you succeed and you fail as a team, and uh, you uh, to be a better leader through just like sort of delivering feedback in a way that's thoughtful, efficient, but like careful yeah. um, about like the person's feelings. <laughs> that's, yeah. That spend time making this thing that you may or may not like. You so know? I, I'd love to unpack that a little bit. Like, how do you how do you navigate that type of feedback? Because your work is very based in um, facts, mm -hmm. based in like you know, it correct, incorrect. There are a lot of like hard lines. I feel in in some of the the work that you have to deal mm -hmm, with. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of that feedback um, also probably touches a lot of hot buttons for people. Like how do you how do you manage that? Um, like let's say you need a complete pivot. How do you communicate that to your team? I think we involve our team quite a bit in the decision making process and early on. So one thing we learned very early on with Isometric is that we'll do a research workshop before we make any design with the client and we bring our full team to the workshop. And in it, we show them inspiration images, case studies, and kind of lay out what we're thinking and get their feedback. And so our team has an opportunity to really understand the strategic goals of the project right. and also think about like visual directions that could achieve those goals. And what I found really helpful on a day-to-day -day basis is that I'll sit down with the architect that we have on our team, you know, every morning for like 20 minutes and just talk about the project. And it's an opportunity for us to have a conversation for Guaning, who uh, who's working with us, to kind of share his ideas and you know his understanding of the project, and for me to be able to influence that conversation based on any information that I have that may not be visible to him. And that kind of more discursive approach helps us be on the same page, and for me to really understand like what kind of hard work is being put in on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Um, and so we try as much as possible to bring reasoning to our conversations. So whoever has an opinion, we encourage ourselves <laughs> to back it up with reasoning so that we can have a conversation about it. Gotcha. Yeah. And then sometimes like some like younger designers will want to make something that looks cool or sexy, you know, use those words to describe it. Our team doesn't thankfully <laughs> use those words, but I think what's interesting is that um, they still want to make stuff that you know is along the lines of what they're seeing from their peers at other studios and so that brings in a, a really helpful kind of energy because you don't have to exclude yourself from things that might be trendy but really like sort of you know relevant to this particular project and i found that super helpful like being <laughs> open to evolving aesthetics yeah. being okay with like a whole bunch of different kinds of visual expressions mm -hmm. so long as it feels authentic and it feels like um you can convince the client this is the right solution for this project yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense so as we're winding down i know that you have an appointment to get to <laughs> is it watching uh slave play? play yeah got it what time does the show start two two yeah. oh man <laughs> Is that that's a two-parter? That's a single-parter. It's a single part. Yeah. Single-parter. Wow. Two hours. Two hours. Oh yeah, it's a, that's a tight two. Cool. So uh, that said, uh, what what's coming up for Isometric Studio? Uh, what are you guys working on? Anything that uh, this episode might release? Let's in in a couple weeks, a few weeks. So, anything that our listeners can check out in the meantime. Anything that's upcoming, and also whatever else you want to talk about. 
Sure. So one thing that's super relevant and exciting for us is that we're doing our first project with the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian National Ooh, Design Museum. Oh, tight. It's a, Shout out uh, to the Kuhue. Yeah. I've worked with them. I've done a couple workshops with them. Also, I've gotten access to their to their beautiful Kuhue font. That's great. Yeah, yeah. they're amazing. Um, it's a traveling exhibit that started at the De Young Museum. Okay. It's called Contemporary Muslim Oh, with the De Young over in uh, SF? Yes. Okay, great. And then travel to... I know Sa where jails are in Jersey, and also <laughs> I know where the De Young Museum is. <laughs> yes. So it's uh, called Contemporary Muslim Fashions. And so it's got like more than 80 mannequins and all kinds of expressions of Muslim fashion wow. with head coverings and not. The thesis being that it's all about um, personal choice yes. and people finding their own meaning and their own personal expression. And it's going to be opening in late February. Oh, very Hewitt. cool. Okay. And it's going to be on the third floor. We're and and that's currently at the De Young. It's changing over to the Cooper Hewitt. Currently, actually, in the middle, it went to Frankfurt. Oh, okay. And now Germany. it's kind of, yes. Okay. And then it's coming to New York from there. Very cool. So that would be something that I think is uh, we're super excited about. We're also, we've been working for a year with the Center for Reproductive Rights, mm -hmm. wow. which is a, a very important international nonprofit that, mm -hmm. that deals with the legal side of, um, of advocacy right. for women's reproductive health. That's awesome. And uh, it's been a long process, but- Is that associated with Planned Parenthood or is it no. just, okay. It's a separate organization. Oftentimes, um, if you think, think of P Planned Parenthood as providing clinics yes. and direct healthcare, uh, basically, Center for Reproductive Rights creates the legal structures for that to happen. So they are have the current Supreme Court case that's in the Supreme Court um, that's on this uh, season's docket. And um, at the end of February, uh, like a, a temporary website and the brand will launch um, in time with the oral arguments uh, for the Supreme Court case. I think it's Louisiana. Okay. Um, uh, the case was originally in Louisiana. And now... Um, basically, uh, they're trying to sort of advance um, a different language for reproductive rights that's more mature, that's not just clinical or uh, about medicine, mm -hmm. um, but about a whole right, yeah, a whole spectrum of activities related to people's rights to choose for their own bodies. Mm -hmm. And then on a lighter note, um, we're working on a restaurant identity. It's called Rule of Thirds. It's Rule of be, Thirds. Yeah, it's going to be opening up at uh, ADO. Oh, okay. The Brooklyn. one in Brooklyn? Yes. Oh, I love that space. And um, it's going to be a bento box and izakaya restaurant. Oh, man. So we're really excited. It's the team that was formerly at Okonomi that's uh, very, very aesthetically oriented. <laughs> it's a good partners. Um, nice. We are also uh, launching our first big signage project, okay. uh, which is an entire tower, a former Bank of America tower next to Grand Central. And it's called Company, which okay. is part of Milstein Properties um, projects. And it's a co-working space really? um, that has all kinds of different endeavors happening. It's just bustling with activity and uh, working with shop architects on that. So that's going to open up in the next few weeks as well. Sounds like you guys have a ton on your plate. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're yeah. so honored and uh, excited to be here. Oh, my here. God. I'm honored and excited. And also, I know I've been trying to get you guys on for a little bit. And I'm so happy that this season specifically, with everything that's happening in the world right now, mm -hmm. it's, it's able to... Um, I'm glad that we're able to sit down at the table and just like talk through a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. Just as a, a note to conclude, I think... Um, this kind of podcast and this kind of like cultural production really gives me hope. Oh, and, and thank I, you. And I, I feel like well, that's kind of what we need right now. I think 
um, to nourish ourselves as designers uh, so that we can nourish others, that we need to keep putting out positive messages out there, telling people's stories in a way that's sophisticated, that's thoughtful, yeah. and that sort of adds to the depth of what our fields mean and not be afraid of, um, of claiming uh, this important cultural position. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, hey, look, this is on. It takes a village to do any of this stuff, and I'm just amazed when anyone wants to just sit down and talk about anything on these microphones. So um, I'm so stoked and honored and grateful that we could all do this today. Thanks. So Thank much. you. Absolutely. Oh, where can our listeners find you? Really quick. Website, social media, all that stuff. Uh, isometricstudio.com. Okay. It's only one isometric. <laughs> People sometimes say isometrics or isometric studios. We're not a movie studio. <laughs> um, and also um, our social media is isometric studio. Cool. All right, thank you. Thank you so much. Rich. Bye. Thanks. So thanks to Andy and Vakas. That felt like a real education for me. And honestly, it was so great for them to come by, have them drop knowledge. And uh, I'm really grateful for that and hope you guys enjoyed it. But that said, you can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It really helps spread the good word. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. You can find me, your host, at rich underscore tu. Uh, again, thank you to Listening Party and Canal Street Market. Follow them in at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Thanks to Des Gen team for their support. Thank you for checking out Season 5 of First Gen Burden. Come back next week, dropping every Monday. Be safe, everyone. Bye.